of the Bible is about old things happening and people being so stuck in the past they can't see the new thing happening right before their eyes. Israel fell apart time and time and time again and they missed the new thing. Israel as a country, they got conquered and the prophets were writing and, and God was speaking to these prophets in the Old Testament and he said, behold, I'm doing a new thing. Jesus was the newest thing, and no one was ready for it. And last night, we talked a little bit about Jesus, but you know how we've been doing things here. We started, back to the Avengers, we started with who are you? The garden, image bearers, made to be in community. We can't properly worship God together unless we have learned how to be in a proper community together. And we're called to live a life that honors God and worships God, and yet we look around in the world and see darkness. We, things, we see things fall apart. Even take yourself out of the equation, you don't look far and you see things going wrong. And the word we brought up that brings so much baggage with it is this word sin. And how sin is not just like, oh, like you did what I don't like, therefore you sin. No, sin is far more severe. Sin is missing the mark. It's when we're aiming at something else completely. But we also learned about how sometimes we can be aiming at God, we can have the best of intentions and still fall short. We still miss the mark. And that's led to every single problem human beings have dealt with their entire lives. When you put popularity as your aim, it will never satisfy you. When you put a relationship as your aim, it'll never satisfy you. If you put your talents in a sport, it'll never satisfy you. I know the Olympics are happening right now, but multiple people have pulled out of the Olympics because they've trained their whole lives for this and they just can't do it. It's not enough. And so we talked about this story when Jesus came on earth, God in the flesh, God choosing to be with us in the most intimate way he can. And Jesus finds this woman at a well and says, hey, I don't care that you're a Samaritan. I don't care that you're a woman. I don't care what anyone else has said about who you are or where you've been or what you've done. The question is, are you ready to drink living water? Are you ready to stop being thirsty? Because all the things in the world tell you they can satisfy your thirst. Sometimes church does too. But make no mistake, God alone is the one that can fulfill your thirst. And Jesus came to this earth to show us the way to fulfill that thirst. We're not supposed to be looking for water anywhere else. And so tonight... I want to tell you a little bit more about where Jesus goes. He does all these things on earth, and, and sometimes when we hear like either the Christmas story or the Easter story, we get confused. Like Jesus was like healing people and like giving people food. Like why did everyone hate him? Why is everyone so mad at him? The problem is Jesus was doing things outside of the norm. He was doing things outside of the old way. He was doing something new entirely, and people weren't ready for it. And so we're going to jump in to our text tonight, but before we do, there, there's this famous scene where Jesus walks into Jerusalem. It's the week of his death. 
He comes in on a donkey because he's humble. He's showing us something about the character of God. Remember this, everything about Jesus tells us everything about God. When Jesus wept, that tells us something about God, weeping with us. Jesus comes into the city, and a few different things happen, but the night before he's betrayed, that's the language we use, he had this dinner. We call it the Last Supper because it's the last supper or dinner he had before everything went awry. And he's with his closest friends, the 12 disciples, and it turns out one of them were, was going to betray him. And he sits down, and he's, he's trying to tell them everything that's about to happen. He's like, listen, things are about to change drastically, but don't lose hope. Don't lose the faith. And in this inter- interaction is when Judas, that character, is outed as the one that will betray Jesus. He leaves the party, and Jesus says these words to close his time with the disciples. He says, listen, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's command and remained in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Jesus is giving us the blueprint, and it sounds lame. Follow the rules, and everything goes well. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, listen, I have showed you the way to do this, that that loving God and following God is much different than aiming at all of these other things that promise to satisfy, but you have to do it this way. It's not because I want it my way, it's because there is no other way. After this dinner, Jesus walks out and he finds Judas with the Roman guards and they arrest Jesus. Now, it's important to note we talked about some of the C's already, right? the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and and they were the ones that were helping the Romans arrest Jesus. Rome didn't care about this Jesus guy. As long as everyone did their part, didn't matter. It was the, the Jews that were upset with Jesus because Jesus was claiming something that was really, really terrible. He claimed to be God. And to these Jews, they didn't believe that. They were waiting for a Messiah, that word. They're, they're waiting for a Savior, this Christ Christ isn't Jesus' last name, it's his title. They're waiting for this person that's gonna liberate them from the bondage of any oppressor, whether it's Rome or someone else. And Jesus was not who they wanted. Jesus claimed to forgive sins. That means Jesus was claiming to be God. And so they said, no, we need to get rid of this guy. And so they go. And our text goes on, it says, the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas, who was the head of these leaders, to the palace of the Roman governor. So Pilate came out, that's the Roman governor, and he asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. So Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. They said, but we have no right to execute anyone. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. You see what's happening here. 
They arrest, they wanted to get Jesus arrested to get him out of the picture, and he wanted to, they wanted to pin the crime on Rome because Rome would put this guy to death. Now, in their laws, they couldn't put Jesus to death for what he was doing and saying. In fact, there were so many followers of Jesus. I mean, how could they justify it? But they were trying to, to get Rome in on this plot. And so it goes on, it says, now it was the custom at the festival of the Passover to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man named Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. Pause. This is one of those cultural moments. We talked about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these two groups that hated each other, but they liked each other enough to hate Jesus together. There's another group we didn't talk about called the Zealots. Now, in this whole scenario, in the Old Testament, we read these prophecies of, of the, the Christ, the Messiah that's going to come and liberate everybody, and the zealots were so upset because Rome was in charge, and so they took it upon themselves to liberate themselves. They said, we don't want this oppressive Roman government to rule anymore. They began to kill some of the leaders, whether they were Jews that were co cooperating with the government or the Roman leaders themselves, and Barabbas was one of these zealots involved in an uprising where he tried to take out more and more leaders, and he failed. He murdered a few, but he failed in the end. So he's in prison, and Pilate says, okay, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, meaning Jesus, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him? But the chief priest, they stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. Now, here's what's actually going on here. Jesus came and said, listen, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. But here's what the kingdom of God looks like. It means it doesn't matter if you're poor or if you're oppressed by this Roman government. It doesn't matter what family or tribe you were built, born into. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. It doesn't matter. You are an image bearer. But you need to follow these commandments. It's the only way. And Barabbas was part of a sect of Jews that said, no, no, we don't want peace. We want to take back victory ourselves. Judaism was a place where they wanted liberation from these oppressors. And so as a result, when he put Jesus up next to Barabbas, Barabbas was viewed as a hero who was trying to die to save the Jews and ironically didn't notice it was Jesus that was about to die to save us all. Barabbas was viewed as a hero and they chose to set him free. This is the story of the good news, that word gospel. Good news is only good news if it's good for all of us. But luckily, Jesus isn't so concerned with if we're ready or not. He did it anyways. And so they did all of these pre-crucifixion things. You've probably seen crosses at some point in your life, but there's a lot of baggage tied up in that cross. Before the cross would come, they would whip the person getting ready to go up on that cross. And with Jesus, they stuck some purple robes on him and dug a crown of thorns into his skull to mock him as the king of the Jews. He said, oh, you call yourself the king? 
Save yourself. But Jesus' plan was never the way that we view plans to go. The question is, why would Jesus allow this all to happen to him? Why would he be humiliated, spit upon, and whipped? It's because he had to do it this way. The text says, when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. The crucifixion, if you don't know, is the time when uh, this T-shaped wood carved from a tree, someone is put up on it, and you're nailed through your hands and your feet, and that sounds pretty gruesome, and you just hang up there, but actually what, how you die is from suffocation, because you can't support your own weight, and so you have to pick yourself up to begin to breathe again just for a moment, just for a gasp of air before you drop down again and feel the pain in your limbs. It's humiliating. It's one of the most excruciating ways that a person could die, and the Romans were excellent killers. That's how they ran the world, because it wasn't just a way to kill someone. It was a way to make everyone else get in line. Jesus took that on for us. And as he's up there on that cross, he doesn't say, how did you not understand why I did this? He says, Father, forgive them. They don't even understand what they're doing. In Jesus' lowest moment, his thought was of us. Because no, we weren't there, but we are the ones involved in that crucifixion. We are the ones that, do, we reject Jesus all the time with what we do and what we say. And Jesus' response is, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And it's not that the Jews didn't know what they were doing, but they didn't know. You ever know something, but you don't know it? The Jews didn't grasp the gravity of what was happening. And on that cross where Jesus was hanging up on our behalf, something else entirely was going on. We talked about this garden a couple nights ago. And Adam and Eve, their sin involved this tree. They, they picked this fruit they weren't supposed to eat, and they begin to eat. And so you could say the first sin was tied to this tree. And because of that, all humans afterwards were destined to continue to miss the mark to try and fill this, this hole in us with all the things around us. And here we are, Jesus is on another tree, reconciling us to himself and to God. Jesus didn't go on the cross because God was upset with you. Jesus went on our behalf. Jesus went, he doesn't go onto the cross because, oh, like this will be good, everything's gonna be great after this. No, sin is that serious. Everything we do matters. The cross is the place, though, where everything changes. Jesus is not just up on this cross for an hour. It's a while. The suffering is excruciating. People are mocking him as he's up there, and he finally dies. Some of the gospels say he gave up the spirit. He breathed his last breath and all the people watching, Jesus' followers, some of them had already abandoned him, his, his 12 disciples. Some of them were there. And imagine, you're the Jews. 
And all throughout the Old Testament, you were believing God was on your side and you were going to win. And then your country got conquered and you became slaves to another nation. And now you started to follow this, this poor man from Nazareth who was healing people and feeding people and telling us about the kingdom. And you put all your hope in that person and he died before your eyes. Hope was gone. That's what happens at the cross to the onlookers. But God was doing something else entirely. The text goes on, it says, the people, they were taking Jesus' body, so they wrapped it, and with spices in strips of linen, this was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. And at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden was a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid because it was the Jewish day of preparation and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Did you see that? The place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden was a new tomb. Our story started with a garden where everything went wrong and Jesus dies on the cross, it seems like hope is gone, and yet ends up in this new garden. But things are always different than they seem. God has this way of taking the expected and flipping it on its head because here's what happens on the cross. Here's what happens as Jesus dies. That Somehow, there's all kinds of people that try to make sense of this, by the way. You know how like there's a model of an atom and we can kind of map out how it all looks, but that's not how it really looks, but we're trying to make sense of it. We don't really understand God. And if you could, he wouldn't really be God, would he? I mean, really, if you could explain every detail about who God is, is that a God you want to worship? If it all makes sense, if, if God's just another guy in the room or another gal in the room and you just, oh yeah, I spent enough time, I know every detail now. That's not God. That is a projection of yourself. The God of Scripture is beyond us, and yet in Jesus came to be with us in the most intimate way possible. Jesus dies on a cross because he suffered the worst death possible and didn't deserve it. This man did nothing wrong. This is your God who said, no, it's not good enough for you to sacrifice or make a sacrifice anymore. It's not about you guys now. I'm taking over now. It's me putting myself on the line on your behalf. It says, for God so loved the world, he sent his only son to die, not that any should perish, that all of us should have eternal life. The cross is the place, the catalyst, the turning point for this story because when Jesus ends up in this garden, it's this reminder of what God does in gardens. He's present with us. He's building community with us. He's building relationships with us in this garden. But no one knew it yet. Jesus is dead. This is Friday. And Sunday didn't come yet. Romans 5.8. It's a letter written by Paul. And there he's explaining the gospel and he says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Sometimes we think that to go to the cross and to reap the benefits that we need to fix ourselves up. But the text says that no, it was while we were still missing the mark, while we still didn't get it, while we were still in the crowd chanting, kill him, crucify him, that's when he decided to get crucified on our behalf. 
God doesn't wait for you to fix yourself up. He's the one that makes you good. He's the one that restores that image to you. God doesn't love us because we're good. That's the mistake. That's where the world gets it wrong. They thought they had it right. You see these billboards, be the best you. Great. What happens when the best you isn't good enough? God doesn't love you because you're good. He makes you good because he loves you. Do you get that? It's not just some arbitrary goodness where it's like, oh, I hold the door open and I pay my taxes on time and I've never stolen or cheated to get points at camp. No, God makes you good because he loves you. He fulfills your life because he loves you. He went on that cross because he loves you and he loves you way too much to leave you in the mess you make for yourself and we all make messes. There's this theologian Theologians, fancy word for people that talk about God. By the way, you're all theologians. All of you say something about God. Even if you don't believe in God, you're saying something in that statement. The question is, what's your theology? What are your words about God? So there's this theologian I love, C.S. Lewis, and he uses this image, and he says, human beings are like a house, but we're alive. And we recognize this idea that like God has to come to us and change us and build us up. And so look, okay, we're good. Come on in, Jesus, like fix up some things. We've got some holes in that roof that are leaking. That's a little annoying. We need to fix those gutters and the doors like kind of hanging weird, but okay. And then Jesus comes into our lives and he starts knocking out walls and he starts ripping up floors and he starts throwing on additions to the house. And we're like, whoa, this is... This is way more painful than I anticipated. This is way bigger than I was hoping for. This is not what I signed up for. And the thing is, we thought Jesus was gonna make us into this like cute little cottage, but no, he's making us into a palace and he intends to live in it. God is not interested in making you a better version of you. He's interested in making you good. Those are different things. He's interested in making you look like Jesus. He's interested in walking in your worst, darkest moments with you. Remember on the first night, God's love is for you and wants relationship with you. And on that cross, he went up there for you and he walks with you. The cross is no game. It's darkness, but the darkness never wins. We just sang three songs about it. Death couldn't hold him. That's not the end of this story. The cross is a symbol of hope and light because it wasn't dark enough to stop true light. Jesus was not stopped by the cross. It was the very thing by which love wins. It's the very thing by which he says, no, it doesn't matter where you've been or where you think you are or what you've done or what people have told you about yourself I don't care. It doesn't matter if you're a Samaritan or a man or a woman. It doesn't matter if you're 12 or 18 or 55. God wants relationship with you. And the cross is the initiation. The cross says it doesn't matter how many times you missed the mark. Sin is conquered because God himself went on that cross on your behalf. And when we choose to walk into that Christ life, when we choose to take seriously what God has done, the Apostle Paul says that we're a new creation. 
Old creation is being born in the flesh, being born into sin, being born into the old garden. But this is the new garden where Jesus was laid after that sacrifice for you. And he says, if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. The old stuff has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Back to some Greek for you. We don't translate this so well, but it's actually this continuous action. So it's not just has become, are becoming new. All things are constantly becoming new. God is changing us daily. And the thing is, we don't always recognize where God is. Whether it's a burning bush or it's a man at a well, we don't always see how God is in our lives. And the thing is, the cross is the picture that God doesn't care if you're ready to see him. He's already pursuing you. He's already moving. He's already calling out to you. Remember the garden. They hid in the woods because they heard him and knew what they had done. And he calls out, where are you? The question on the cross is not, where are you? It's, I am here. This is why the imagery of the cross is so important. It's no longer a passive waiting for you to figure it out. No, it's God breaking through in the most significant way to say, I'm here with you now. Come on. All the disciples Jesus called, he said, come, follow me. He didn't convince them. Come, follow me. He's calling to you now, come and follow me because the cross is the place where everything you think could hold you back from living water died but it's the place where new life springs up in a new garden. Now tonight is what we like to use as this place to engage in this ancient practice called solitude and silence. We're gonna spend 20 minutes tonight where we're gonna walk off and we're gonna go to different places on camp. And we're gonna have that time to Stop worrying about all of the things going on around us. So no phones, don't sit next to your friends. There's this old, uh, we'll say thinker, his name's Blaise Pascal. I know we've got a Blaise here, it's not him, okay? <laughs> Blaise Pascal said, all of human beings' problems stem from the fact that none of us know how to sit alone in silence. And the thing is that all of us in the world around us, there's so much noise, so many things trying to grab your attention and tell you it's the most important thing, and it's a lie. And we're not good at sitting in silence with our thoughts. We're not good at sitting alone and listening to what might need to be heard. And so the 20 minutes of silence is a time for you to sit and listen. Now, you're, you're all different people. That's what's beautiful about community. That's what we want. That's what the image bearers are supposed to be. Maybe you're not there yet. Maybe you have heard me talk for a few nights, you've heard these songs, you sing along, you jump around, but you don't think God is real or you're not ready to commit. That's okay. 20 minutes of silence is a time for you to think about why you are where you are. Listen to the thing going on inside of you. What is resonating? What are you resisting? Spend that time evaluating what's happening. Maybe you're a person that you came to camp, you'd never thought about God, you weren't really interested, but maybe at this point you're thinking, hey, I don't have it all figured out, but yeah, I think I'd like to engage in this stuff. Maybe the 20 minutes of silence is a place for someone like that. Say, God, 
I'm here. I hear you, and I'm here. I don't know what's next, but I'm here. God shows up. Maybe you're a person that you came to camp and you were a Christian already. You follow Jesus, you follow the faith, but your faith has gone stale. Maybe you've heard too many talks at Surf City and you're like, Mike, get off the stage. Maybe you're tired of hearing the same old, same old, and you need Jesus to breathe new life. You need Yahweh in your lungs in a new way. Spend the 20 minutes of silence telling God about where you are. Or maybe you feel like you're great right now. Maybe you feel like God has been so present with you. You just like, you walk and you're just like, oh my goodness, I can't believe God is so close. And that's a beautiful thing. But never forget, God is doing a new thing. Listen for where God is leading you. All of the problems of the world can go back to the fact we don't know how to sit in silence and be honest with ourselves and own who we are and own what needs to be done. So tonight, we're gonna pray right now. And we're gonna leave this room in silence. And in about 20 minutes, you're gonna hear a car horn. That's gonna be the ending signal. I know. When you leave that place, wherever it is, go to your cabins, and that's where you'll have cabin time. Don't dilly-dally, don't, don't talk to each other. Listen, if you're not there yet, that's okay. But don't ruin this moment for someone else. The two things I ask you to do on the first night is to lean in and to be here. This is one of those important moments. Be here and let the people around you be here. Let's pray. God, thank you for this night. Thank you for this place and thank you for your word. We think of the cross. It's a symbol that we, we tattoo on our bodies and we hang on necklaces and we stick on cars and sometimes we forget the great Thing you've done for us, Lord. You're calling out to us where we are, and Lord, we are here now asking you to speak, asking to make your presence known, and asking you to lead us. And so as we go from this place, make us know where you would have us go next. In Christ's name, amen.